Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Dr. Anton Jessup, Professor of Monster Studies. And I am Professor Griffith Wells, Warden of the Howling Pit. Robert and Joe have a delightfully ghoulish installment of the podcast for you today. One guaranteed to curdle your blood and expand your mind in the most cranium-popping ways imaginable. It's a science-based stroll through the world of horror anthology, television, and cinema. The Twilight Zone. The Night Gallery. Tales from the Crypt. Treehouse of Horror and more. So stake around, bloodsuckers, and find out which episodes they picked and what sorts of scientific subjects they were able to suck from their victims. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And as you can tell from our uh, delightful intro there by a couple of colleagues of ours. We'll just assume it was delightful. It was. They sounded delighted. They sounded delighted <laughs> there at the end. But they always, even, the most, uh, even in the most inopportune of times. Well, it's, it comes down to the, the things they delight in, I suppose. But, uh, but what they told you uh, is correct. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, horror anthologies uh, today, and then we're going to we're going to wring some science from their um, their desiccated corpses. That sounds like great fun to me. But, Robert, so by horror anthology, you mean like TV shows where, say, it's it's horror-themed and it's not the same characters every episode. We're, right. We're not so much talking about like Monster of the Week episode on the episodes on the X-Files or Buffy. Right. And we're also not talking about uh, the sort of modern version of this that you see with American Horror Story where each season it's a different story. No, we're talking about uh, the likes of The Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Uh, sh- shows, of, shows of this nature where each episode is a self-contained story or sometimes a pair of stories or a, a short story and a, like a, a sliver of a little extra on there. But they're, they're self-contained. They're, they're essentially horror, short horror fiction that has been uh, translated generally for television. But then, you, of course, you also see uh, cinematic uh, uh, installments of these shows as well where you'll have a feature-length film that consists of, say, three, four, maybe five uh, different short horror segments. Oh, yeah. Maybe we can do – maybe we can include movies like that in the future. I think we just did TV shows this time. Yeah. There, there are a few a few kind of branch out into film a little bit. Um, and of course, of course, we'd be remiss. We don't end up talking about any of these episodes. But Black Mirror, I think, is one of the finer examples of uh, a horror – at times more sci-fi, but really most of those episodes are pretty terrifying. Uh, I, I think you could make an argument that Black Mirror is a horror anthology television series. Now, Robert, I'm a little at a disadvantage in this episode because you have seen far more of these types of shows than I have. I, I'm I'm big on Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, but I've actually seen pretty – I've seen no Tales from the Dark Side. <laughs> I think no Night Gallery. I've actually not seen all that much Twilight Zone, a few episodes, you know, here and there. And the only – 
full Tales from the Crypt episode I've actually seen that I remember is a deeply inappropriate one with Tim Curry, who is the most <laughs> wonderful actor ever in, in, in all of acting history, uh, but it's just too grotesque to even talk about. Well, well, as we'll get into, that description can go for just about every Tales from the Crypt episode. Oh, yeah. Like great actors and sometimes great filmmakers, uh, but kind of a deplorable story. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, if, I, if I've seen a lot of uh, horror anthology TV shows, it's because I, I watched a lot of sci-fi channel and syndicated cable back mm-hmm. in the 90s. I guess you could say it was my uh, my uh, teacher mother secret lover uh, <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to reference the Treehouse of Horror. Um, but yeah, I watched uh, like stuff like Night Gallery, Twilight Zone, uh, Outer Limits, both new and old, I think, on the original Sci-Fi Channel. Watch Tales from the Dark Side in like syndication on Sunday afternoons. It always felt like a particularly unholy place for it to be. Well, you know what I do expect to find if we get into if, if I go back and start watching shows like this is I bet I will recognize things from when I was a kid and we would go on a trip and like stay in a motel or mm-hmm. something like that. And of course, they always had all the the channels we didn't get at home, so they had the Sci-Fi Channel, and I'd just tune into whatever in the hotel. <laughs> and so occasionally, I'll see some crazy movie now and realize I saw a piece of it as a child on vacation with my family in a hotel. Well, I didn't have ready access though to, to Tales from the Crypt. Uh-huh. Uh, I would what would happen is occasionally was that they, on HBO. It was on HBO. It was uh-huh. really one of the original original HBO programs. But uh, to watch it, since we were not HBO subscribers, I had to either hit it and just mainline it uh, during HBO preview weekends mm-hmm. or more often watch them half scrambled because I could <laughs> – it would be like – they would be kind of like pizza-colored scrambled uh, versions of it or sometimes, you know, it would just become black and white. So there are some episodes of Tales from the Crypt when I go back and watch them now I'm like, oh, I had no idea. For instance, I had no idea that that was Tim Curry uh, playing a female character uh, because clearly the first time I watched it, it was too scrambled for me to tell. Well, in that episode, that's kind of a mercy, I think. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, wow, it's amazing the things people will put up with in the search for for a story that they're into, you know? Like, oh, yeah. like the idea, I always think it's funny that, you know, people watch like theater bootlegged videos. They'll like, somebody will record a movie with a camcorder inside a theater and people will watch that. Yeah. That's got to look terrible, but I don't, I mean, people, you, you, they're hungry for it. They want that movie. And I guess you were like that too, watching through, uh, through all the static and weird color variations. Yeah, that was how you got to watch it. Um, yeah, so t- today's episode, for any long-time uh, listeners, just stuff to blow your mind, this is essentially the same concept as the three creepypasta episodes uh, that I did with Christian, mm-hmm. where we would pick uh, you know, creepypasta stories and sort of squeeze the science out of them. And I have to say, we, we squeezed all the science out of creepypasta. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there's, there's much left. So this feels like the next logical place to, uh, to start squeezing horror anthologies. Well, I'd say let's get right into our first selection of the day. All right. Uh, my uh, selection here for our, our first one is A Question of Fear. And this is this is one of my favorite episodes of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, uh, his horror anthology series that ran from 1969 through 1973, uh, and then of course just eternally on the Sci-Fi Channel during the during the 90s. Is this a picture of Leslie Nielsen with an eye patch and a mustache? I'm it looking is. at. It is. Yes, this episode starred um, Leslie Nielsen 
as Colonel Dennis Malloy. <laughs> and it also starred actor Fritz Weaver as Dr. Mozzie. Uh, Weaver is terrific in this as well. I mean, Nielsen is great in this. This is the pre-Naked Gun Nielsen. This is the mm-hmm. serious actor Nielsen. Oh, he was that way for a long time. Yeah. Uh, what movie did I just watch recently where he plays uh, a straight character? I can't remember right now. But, of course, he was in Forbidden Planet. Oh, was he? Yeah, you don't remember. He, he was like the main – he was the commander astronaut in Forbidden oh, Planet. Yeah, okay. I mean, Forbidden Planet's great. It's not great for the astronaut characters who, mm-hmm. as usual, are just like some stiff white dudes. <laughs> well, uh, you could say that Leslie Nielsen was also one of those, those stiff well, yeah, white dudes for sure. Um He's kind of – I put him in the same category as Peter Graves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and like Peter Graves and, and was later used uh, to terrific effect in comedy as, such as in the airplane movies and the, the Naked Gun movies. Uh, and in this, he's he's pretty great because he plays just a very um, – uh, just a very hard, cold character. Mm-hmm. This colonel he plays, he's a fearless mercenary uh, that, that has, uh, you know, just been in multiple wars. And even after World War II was over, he, you know, he couldn't get enough. So he just continually works as a mercenary. Okay. and Kind uh, of a Lee Marvin type. Yeah, very much. Uh, very much a Lee Marvin type character here. Uh, also reminds me a lot of the, the kind of character that, say, uh, um, Lee Van Cleef would have played. Oh, yeah, Okay. So uh, in in this episode, it starts off with uh, a gentleman's club, and here is uh, Colonel Malloy, uh, you know, talking it up with the other uh, gentleman there. And one of the the gentlemen there, Doctor Mozzie, uh, played by Fritz Weaver, uh, starts uh, talking about a, an uh, an episode at a haunted house, some sort of a, an encounter with a haunted house where it, where it's just too terrifying for anyone to survive. And of course, uh, the fearless uh, Colonel here, he starts talking about just how fearless he is and how fear is a disease. Uh, he says, I'm careful, but I am incapable of fear. Okay. <laughs> so this leads to a bet, as apparently you know, tends to happen in uh, stuffy gentlemen's clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mozzie says that he bets he cannot uh, survive uh, one night in this haunted mansion without being scared to death. And, uh, and he puts $10,000 on the line. This is nineteen seventy one dollars. Yeah, this is a load of cash, and so uh, of course our mercenary is up for it to prove how fearless he is and to uh, and to to get uh, a nice payday. He says, "Of course I'll do it." So, uh, and this is one of the fabulous things about this episode is basically a two person show. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, just Weaver and Nielsen. So, and you don't even see Weaver again uh, physically. He only appears on a television uh, set. So, uh, what happens is that uh, Malloy uh, braves the ghost effects in the house, uh, you know, all these smoke and mirror effects that seem intended to scare him out of his payday. He definitely fires a few rounds and does some obvious special effects. Uh, and Wait, this, it, just the audience is clear that they're special effects or it's obvious within the story that they're special effects. I think a little of both, especially to modern viewers. Uh, the effects aren't, like, outright terrible, but anything they're lacking, uh, I think, actually enhances this aspect of the episode. So it's, like, supposed to be visible to Malloy that it's fake. Right, or certainly after he's through, uh, you know, emptying his gun into it, he's like, oh, yeah, right. this isn't real. <laughs> um, I dealt with the problem the way I deal with all my problems. I attempted to murder it. Right. Uh, and then I saw that it wasn't anything to be afraid of. So uh, he, eventually, though, he settles <laughs> into bed. He has a little coffee uh, for some reason, and then he says, all right. I'm just going to go to bed, and when I wake up, I'm going to be $10,000 richer. Dreaming of mounting ghost heads on his wall. Right. 
but then the second he settles in, iron bars snap into place over him, and a pendulum starts descending from the ceiling, and he still refuses to give in to the fear. He, he like, yells, all right, Mozzie, you can do this, you can kill me, but you're not going to win, because look at me, still not afraid, not afraid to die. And, uh, and so... He ends up uh, going to sleep. And when he wakes up, he makes himself breakfast. And uh, Mozzie communicates with him via a live TV transmission. And he reveals the following. First of all, Malloy apparently encountered Mozzie's pianist father in Italy during the Second World War, where he tortured him for information, pouring gasoline over his hands and setting them on fire. Whoa. So, as you can imagine, Mozzie swore to find Malloy and to break him. You burn my daddy's hands, I'll get you for this. Right, yeah. So now we know, oh, it's a revenge piece. So Mozzie reveals at this point that he is a biochemist, uh, one of the greatest biochemists uh, in the field, and is highly respected uh, in the realm of biochemical warfare. And he says that he and his colleague recently discovered a way to convert a complex enzyme in the human body into that of an earthworm. And by injecting this, he says, quote, the bones of the body disintegrate without affecting the nervous system or the vital organs until the victim is as near as can be an earthworm, able to move on its belly, but without vertebrae, unable to stand, able to feed, able to pass waste matter, but unable to use its arms and legs except to assist with a slithering motion in the manner of an earthworm. I can't help but notice this sounds like a better and more interesting version of a, a movie I don't like to talk about. Yes, I, I, I have long thought about this. We've had a couple of movies that have come out uh, over the past 10 years in which a deranged scientist wants to turn somebody into a creature of some sort, generally a lesser invertebrate. Mm-hmm. And and I find that all of those – like the, the concept is initially revolting and appealing, but then you realize it's not really dealt with in any depth. Mm-hmm. And it's only rolled out to, revo- to revolt the audience. Whereas uh, in this episode, I feel like it is, it is leveled in a, in a very intelligent way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, to, to continue uh, going, Malloy initially doubts this. He's like, you're, you're full of it. But Mozzie tells him, oh, well, why don't you look in the cellar and see what became of my colleague? And it says that he was a large man, but now he's reduced to something like a slug. And indeed, earlier in the episode, when, when Leslie Nielsen's character is looking around the mansion, one of the things he encounters is this unexplained trail of slime through the cellar. Uh, and there's this... It's 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 a legitimately creepy moment, and certainly uh, seems a little different from the uh, the ghost effects that are thrown at him. So then he he tells Malloy, Mozzie tells Malloy that the transformation is going to take time, but that he's going to go down in medical history. And there's no stopping it. He said, you can after you leave here, you can tell the police, you can go to a specialist, but first of all, the specialist probably won't believe you, and even if they do, they're not going to be able to help you because this cannot be reversed. Wait, so at this point, he's done something to Malloy. To he's like injected him or something. That's what he claims. Yes, okay. and Malloy calls his bluff, but uh, but he's already beginning to give in the fear. Mozzie tells him. Uh, look, you should just uh, – why don't you ch- check your inside uh, forearm, I believe it is. You'll mm-hmm. find an injection point. We drugged your coffee and I snuck in and injected you while you were asleep. 
And, uh, and if you still don't believe me, then go into the cellar. Go into the cellar and see what my colleague became. And at this point, he's like really working Malloy up. And Malloy begins to move towards the cellar. And he sees the trail of slime, this time uh, you know, working through the hallways and descending into the cellar. And then he turns around and he uh, tells Mozzie that he still isn't – that Mozzie's – there's no way Mozzie's going to win, that, that, the, that, that he, Malloy, is going to win. And then he shoots himself with his own gun. And at this point, um, Mozzie uh, admits, he says, actually, I win because there is nothing in the cellar. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, this is just my retelling of it. So certainly the episode itself is a, is a finer version of the tale than my synopsis here. Oh, I, I love the uh, – <clears throat> it's a common thing apparently in horror to just talk to people through TVs. I'm thinking about those Saw movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Isn't there a segment in Creep Show? Where somebody talks to somebody through a TV. Yes, I believe it is actually Leslie Nielsen. I think so. In the bit where Ted Danson and I can't remember the other actor's name, where they're buried up to their necks in the surf. In the sand, yeah. yeah. And Leslie Nielsen's like, Mwahaha, I'll talk to you through a TV. Yeah, that's a that's a nice connection between this episode and Creepshow, a horror mm-hmm. anthology film. Which, incidentally enough, uh, Fritz Weaver is also in. Really? Yeah, in the crate segment, uh-huh. he plays the professor uh, that uh, works with Hal Holbrook's character. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he's fabulous in that as well. Like he, he's he, he really should go down as more of a, a horror anthology legend. Well, I uh, I got to see this episode. This is pretty creepy. Just hearing you describe it. Yeah, it creeped me out then. It still creeps me out now. Even though there's no actual transformation, it's described so well. It's a it's set up so well that you don't even care. Like it 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 doesn't uh, deflate the horror of it uh, when uh, when you have this final twist at the end. But this uh, yeah, particularly this concept of transformation into an earthworm, <laughs> I feel like there is a lot of dread here, and it and uh, and uh, I'd like to you know discuss a little bit why. Uh, we feel that sense of dread when we imagine being turned into what is essentially a noble organism, uh, the earthworm. Now, I can think of quite a few uh, culturally common uh, body transformation or deterioration phobias. People have phobias about loss of teeth. That's mm-hmm. a common one. People dr- have nightmares about losing their teeth. Uh, there's like the uh, penis retraction phobia. You know, mm-hmm. People have uh, genital deterioration fears. But I've never heard of bone disappearance phobia before. That's a new one. Uh, it's, it's a great one though. There's actually an episode of the Ray Bradbury Theater uh, from the 80s which has a similar plot line in which I believe Eugene Levy plays an individual who goes to a doctor for some sort of skeletal issue and he like removes his skeleton and reduces him to a, a like a, essentially an invertebrate. Oh, so he like becomes a human jellyfish? Yeah, basically. Wow. So perhaps it's not explored enough, the, the, the bone removal or disintegration um, subgenre of body <laughs> horror. <laughs> well, Robert, I assume you're going to tell me something about the science of earthworms, right? Yeah, this gave me a good uh, excuse to look at, into the, the, the science of earthworms. And I, I have to apologize to earthworms and humans who've been transformed into them because, uh, you know, we could do a whole episode just on the importance of earthworms and the evolution of earthworms. That's probably true of any of the subjects we discuss in this episode. We could probably expand them into a whole episode of their own. Yeah, if we were, if I was a little more of a grown-up about it uh, and was... <laughs> <laughs> and didn't want to just use these things as an excuse to talk about Night Gallery. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, the, uh, we're talking about uh, annelids here uh, from the uh, annelidophyllum, which includes all the segmented worms, such as earthworms, leeches, 
and a whole host of polychaete marine worms, uh, such as the bristle worm, which I recently got to see on a vacation in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah? In the tide pools, yeah. Um, what, what do they look like? Are they bristly? They are bristly. And if you touch them, especially if a five-year-old touches them, uh, they will, uh, they, they will uh, uh, sting you. Oh, no. Yeah. But they, they, the, the child was fine. It was a, a friend of uh, my son's. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was fine. He got to have, but he did get to have a, a very up-close and personal experience with the, with the bristle worm. Um, so the, uh, this particular phylum contains more than 9,000 species and 6,000 species of earthworm. They live everywhere except Antarctica, and there are even bioluminescent earthworms. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I found a couple of great sources uh, on them. Uh, in particular, Dr. Frank Anderson and Dr. Samuel James. Uh, they uh, they did a a blog post at Biomedical Central uh, titled "The Evolution of Earthworms." So earthworms are fabulous. They're they're uh, ecosystem engineers, working, draining, aerating the soil. I feel like nowadays most people realize that hey, if you've got worms living in your garden, earthworms, they're they're doing the Lord's work. That's good. But yeah. what did we not always realize that worms were good for the soil? Well, it seems like we didn't. I mean, you can look back to the the writings of say Aristotle, who referred to them as the intestines of the earth, which in many ways true. It, it seems like a good thing, right? Yeah. You don't want to not have intestines. Right. But but apparently uh, before uh, Charles Darwin uh, came along with his uh, interest in earthworms, there was this idea, at least in uh, the Western world, at least in uh, in Europe, uh, in Britain specifically, that earthworms were kind of a pest in your garden, <laughs> that they weren't really doing anything. Get them out of there. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, uh, Dr. Anderson and uh, James, uh, uh, one of the things they discuss in their uh, their article is that roughly one-third of the earthworm species in North America were introduced from uh, Europe or Asia, and some were introduced uh, into northern forests, which had been free of earthworms since the end of the last ice age, roughly 11,000 years ago. Oh, wow. I've never thought about that, the way um – like the the soil fauna has to recover after areas have been covered by glaciers, I guess. Yeah. And I believe we've touched on this in the past on the show. Uh, maybe it was a very old episode uh, about the idea of, of earthworms being brought in by um, – uh, by uh, colonial forces from the uh, from the old world into the new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but uh, earthworms, there are a lot of them out there. The largest is the giant African earthworm. Uh, it's typically typically reaches fifty four inches or one point thirty six meters uh, in length, but its record length is twenty two feet or six point seven meters. What? Yeah. Now, even this species, before anyone pictures like a full Leslie Nielsen transformed earthworm, uh, this species was still uh, the the giant here was still uh, less than an inch in diameter. Uh, so nothing that could scare a man to death in a cellar. That makes me wonder, what are the upper limits of like uh, how how filament-like an organism can be? Yeah. Like at some point, uh, you would think that the strains of moving a, a something that long and that thin would want to rip it apart or something. I guess that's why you, you see them remaining so thin. You don't see them reaching sandworm or graboid size. Oh, Yeah. So Anderson and James, they believe that the ancestor of all living earthworms probably lived over 209 million years ago, making earthworms about as old as mammals and dinosaurs. Uh, they base this estimate on DNA sequencing as well as the fossil record, which they, they said, you know, ultimately doesn't tell us a lot regarding earthworms, but it does give us leech cocoon fossils from the late uh, Triassic uh, 201 million years ago, so which presents a, a minimum age for leeches and earthworms. Hmm. But the idea of a human becoming an earthworm, 
uh, the loss of our vertebrate status. I, I think it terrifies us because it also, you know, it reduces us to the activities mentioned by Dr. Mozzie, right? Moving, eating, producing waste. And these are all things we do naturally, but but we tend to focus on all the other aspects of our human existence. I mean, sometimes to the point where we want to reject our inner worm. You'd say, I think generally bones are pretty important to our lives. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree 100% with that. Uh, we, we need our bones. But, uh, but, but also just the idea that the worm doesn't do anything else. I mean, it does a lot, mm-hmm. again, but to sort of the, the human perspective. Right. Digging around in a garden and not knowing what the earthworms are doing. All it seems to do is just food goes in one end, poop comes out the other. It crawls around. It is like just the – you've stripped everything uh, more interesting away from the, the certainly the human experience uh, mm-hmm. and the mammalian experience as well. Well, yeah, I mean a, a common feature of body horror, you know, long before we had David Cronenberg, we had older strains of body horror, the kind of horror that's based not, say, in a monster chasing you but in the transformation of yourself into something you don't like or recognize. Uh, I mean the, the, the most common version of that is – say, reduction to what people would consider a lower strata of animal existence, you know, being made into a beast that's less than human. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't help but think, of course, of of Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Yeah. Uh, Though, of course, that that beast, like, uh, he was turned into, I think the term directly translates into something like vermin, but Mm -hmm. it's often interpreted as like a you know, a cockroach or something like that. Uh, but yeah, he the, the weird thing there is he retains all of his mental faculties. You know, he has full sentience. Uh, he's just had his body transformed. I absolutely love that story. That is, I think that is the only horror story that I've actually read in a foreign language. I read it in a German class. Really? Yeah. Yeah? What was it like in German? It was it was a cool experience. Yeah. Um, I've since forgotten any you know smidge of German that it was. It was that reading that story in German was the absolute um, peak of my, uh, my, my, my German language reading ability. Well, it sounds like a good peak to climb before committing to the valley forever. <laughs> so I mentioned Charles Darwin earlier. Charles Darwin, of course, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the famous naturalist who gave us uh, uh, the, theory, the, the theory of natural selection, uh, he was quite interested in earthworms. And in fact, they were the subject of his last book, 1881's The Formation of Vegetable uh, Mold Through the Action of Worms. Hmm. And despite this you know, what may seem like dry subject matter, perhaps. Uh, it was still the most successful book published during his lifetime. Oh, really? And, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, according to Anderson and James, it was pretty key in changing Western views on earthworms. Uh, uh, they were no longer soil pests. People realized they had uh, importance. And the, tying in with our, directly with our Night Gallery episode, uh, its, its success inspired an 1882 punch uh, which was a publication, uh, Punch Magazine, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a cartoon that depicted worms evolving into monkeys and monkeys evolving into men uh, in you know kind of a, a spiral around a uh, cartoon version of Charles Darwin. Well, I feel like I should know the answer to this question, but I honestly don't. Are Is a worm-like organism at some point believed to be part of our phylogenetic history? Or is or have worms always been separate from whatever became vertebrates and eventually became us? Well, there have been a lot of uh, studies over the years looking at nematodes in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you just do some searches for 
uh, you know, human genetics and worms, you'll find these uh, these articles. And I was tempted to go into those deeper here, but then I realized that's it's really deserving of a, of a whole episode. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, but either way, I mean, whether or not uh, some type of worm is a direct ancestor, obviously we share common ancestry. So the question is, how much do we have in common? Well, uh, I was looking at a paper that goes into this a bit uh, titled Earthworm Genomes, Genes, and Proteins, the Rediscovery of Darwin's Worms. And this was by Strusenbaum, Andre, uh, Kiley, and Morgan. This was published in 2009 in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to read uh, uh, just a section where they, they reference Darwin here. Uh, and in, in particularly, they're referencing that illustration I talked about with the worms transforming into monkeys. Quote, the illustration is a humorous construct, but an examination of the earthworm's structure and function reveals cells and tissues and cell types with vertebrate counterparts. Earthworms are coelomate protostomes, possessing an anatomically and functionally differentiated uh, alimentary canal with brush-bordered absorptive epithelia a closed blood circulation with hemoglobin in free suspension, an organized nervous system with cephalic ganglia and neurosecretory activities, a multifunctional tissue uh, for which uh, carbohydrate metabolism and storage properties are reminiscent of mammalian uh, heptocytes, a series of paired tubules in each segment with renal urine-forming functions and a systemic immune system comprising leukocyte-like cells. So I realize there's a lot of uh, (laughs) very technical information there uh, that I had to stumble through. Uh, But, uh, you know, what it's basically getting down to is that, yes, we're very different from earthworms. I'm not saying that earthworms and humans are basically the same thing. But when you start looking at, at genetics and just sort of life itself, we're not that different. Yeah, no, they've got a lot of similar anatomical counterparts. Yeah. Some of the same stuff you'd see in mammals. And in a way, you can see them as a, like, reduced version of what we are, right? Um, In fact, when you look at our genes, uh, uh, one thing the authors pointed out here is that earthworms share something like 220 genes um, of their their then-cataloged 8,129 gene objects with humans. And that's more than with fruit flies, 68 genes, or nematode worms, 49 genes, despite the importance of fruit fly and nematode genes in human research. Uh, there's, so, you know, so there are a whole lot of vertebrate uh, uh, homologies in there. They wrote in summary that more earthworm genes are conserved between earthworms and humans provides uh, anecdotal support of the original punch cartoon strap line, quote, man is but a worm. That's wonderful. <laughs> and I like how they have fundamentally, conclusively proved that you can inject somebody with an enzyme and turn them into an earthworm. No, 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 no. We're, we're, that's still pure science fiction. But but I think maybe it, it does lean into the idea that it is science fiction mm-hmm. and not just pure sorcery. Uh-huh. Like there, there, there is a connection. There are there is a a wormy, slimy trail descending uh, through the haunted house of human evolution uh, if we dare follow it. Well, I have greatly enjoyed following the slimy trail, Robert. Yeah, I think that's part of the fun of uh, of going after these is like sort of picking an episode uh, from an anthology series and then just seeing what kind of science you can possibly <laughs> squeeze out of it. Um, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, I believe you have a selection for us. All right, we're back. Okay, Robert, Treehouse of Horror. Do you have a favorite Treehouse of Horror of all time? Oh, well— 
I have a, I definitely have a favorite episode, yes, that I watched last night uh, because it has some of the best segments. It has, it has the shinning. Oh, yeah. Which I, uh, I referenced already uh, in the episode. It also has Nightmare Cafeteria, uh-huh. uh, the one where the, you know, the, all the teachers in the, the lunchroom are turning to cannibalism and eating the children. Mm-hmm. But it also has, has one more just really stellar segment. Uh, yes. And this is, of course, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror segment, Time and Punishment. Yes. One of the great Simpsons Treehouse of Horror shorts of all time. Maybe maybe the best one ever. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you the quick rundown. Homer Simpson breaks the toaster by getting his hand jammed in it twice. Uh, <laughs> one of the best gags ever on the show. It still makes me laugh every time the second time he gets his hand jammed in there. It's yeah, it's like, I think Lisa's like, Dad, your hand's still in there. And he's like, ah, ah. And there's just so much fabulous uh, screaming and, um, and sprawling about. Anyway, so he, a hair, uh, toaster's broken. He has to do some repairs. So in doing so, Homer accidentally turns the toaster into a time machine that takes him back <laughs> to the Cretaceous period. And upon arriving, he recalls the advice his father gave him on his <laughs> wedding night, which is if you ever happen to travel back into the past, don't change anything mm-hmm. because the ripple effects through time could be disastrous. <laughs> Unfortunately, of course, Homer ends up killing bugs and, you know, generally messing stuff up in the past. And so Homer comes back to the present, the first time to find a kind of 1984 scenario where Ned Flanders rules the earth. A, a kind of 19A diddly for, if you will. <laughs> yes. And uh, it, it's just too good. So eventually Homer, he he goes back through time again to try to fix things. And every time he changes something in the past, the future changes in horrible ways. Finally, in the end, he settles for a present in which things are basically normal, but everybody has forked lizard tongues. Yeah, I think he's just like, yeah, good enough. Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> uh, and of course, this seems to be based on Ray Bradbury's short story, A Sound of Thunder, which was originally published in Collier's Magazine in 1952. And by the way, Robert, I, I think I'm to understand you have not seen the 2005 movie version of A Sound of Thunder with Ben Kingsley and that dude with an attitude from Saving Private Ryan? No, I, I haven't. You sent me a, a trailer for it. And somehow I, I totally missed that this movie ever even existed. It has some of the most deliciously awful CGI monsters oh. of all time. It's, you know, that kind of early 2000s CGI that at the time people just thought was amazing and now you can't look at it without laughing. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a shame, you know. It's like it's not like some of the stop motion animation you find in older some older horror films. Like this is a or type puppets, of puppets, yeah, yeah, or puppets. Like this, maybe maybe you know our taste will change. Maybe we'll look back on them in ten years and, and we'll love them. But no. Right now, it's very difficult. Well, I mean, I do love them, but not for the reason they were expecting people to love them. (laughs) It's hilarious, like, reading movie reviews from the late 90s and early 2000s where critics will say, like, well, this movie wasn't very good, but at least it has dazzling special effects. Some People were just uh, out of their minds (laughs) in the late 90s and early 2000s for these CGI movies that look so bad you cannot keep your eyes focused on them. You have to look away. 
Yeah. I remember seeing uh, the Spawn movie when uh-huh. it came out and thinking, oh, well, that that had some pretty cool looking action in it. Yeah. And I recently like glanced back. I like granted I didn't watch it in full. I just watched a few s- scenes on YouTube, and I was just really astounded at how bad the CGI was. It's it's amazing. But anyway, this movie it uh, it takes this story. At one point, there's this monster, this kind of like a baboon velociraptor hybrid. <laughs> it's just amazing. But anyway, so what what is uh, the plot of a Sound of Thunder, Ray Bradbury's original story? Well, it involves hunters traveling back through time to go on a safari through time and kill a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And so this time travel safari in the story is believed to be safe because scouts have gone ahead and selected an animal that was about to die anyway. So killing it shouldn't change too much about the past. But then in the story, one one of these safari guys, I think this rich guy paying to go on this trip, he sort of goes off script. He falls off this levitating path that they've constructed uh, and he changes too much about the past, especially in the end by discovering that he crushed a butterfly Mm. under his boot. And so then when they return to the future, everything's weird. English words are spelled different and a fascist politician has come to power. It's a fabulous story. Uh, I should also point out that I think it's the third season of the Ray Bradbury Theater had an adaptation of this that I think was actually scripted by Ray Bradbury. Oh, really? That I remember as being pretty good. Yeah? Uh, so do not feel like you only have uh, that uh, that awful CGI film to fall back on. But But isn't it interesting that probably more people have been exposed to this concept through The Simpsons than through the Ray Bradbury Theater or certainly the, the writings of Ray Bradbury? Oh, I think that's how it often is. I mean, lots of classic sci-fi stories ended up as Simpsons episodes, and that's what people primarily know them from. Just like I bet more people of roughly our generation know uh, the tale of the monkey's paw as oh, yes. the, the Twisted Claw episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. We're essentially talking about folk tales and, mm-hmm. and myths, and these things evolve. These things change with the teller uh, historically, and so it makes sense that they should change with the teller even today. Yeah, but uh, so it, this is sort of a timeless story in a way mm-hmm. because it's illustrating a concept that if you've ever really thought about time travel and what it would mean if time travel into the past could exist, if you think about it hard enough, you're likely to stumble across some version of what's come to be known in in chaos chaos theory and meteorology and mathematics as the butterfly effect. Now, there are plenty of popular misconceptions about the butterfly effect. You heard about it in Jurassic Park and stuff. Uh, One of the common misconceptions is that the term actually comes from Ray Bradbury's story, A Sound of Thunder, because what do we find out at the end? That this guy stepped on a butterfly and he sees it on his boot and realizes, oh, no, that caused these cascading effects through time and changed everything. Uh, This is not the case. The term does not come from that story. In reality, credit can be given to the MIT meteorologist Edward Norton Lorenz, who was discussing the accuracy of weather prediction models. And Lorenz found while working on meteorological computer programs that extremely tiny changes in initial inputs would lead to huge differences in predicted weather patterns over time, such that unavoidable errors in our inputs will probably always make weather fundamentally unpredictable beyond a certain distance into the future. And you actually know this from your own experience, right? You look at today's weather forecast, it's probably pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow's is probably pretty accurate. You try to go seven days into the future, yeah, it's it's kind of a crapshoot then. And predicting, say, weather a month into the future is almost useless. Yeah. 
And this is because even though we have very good weather prediction models at this point, their accuracy just deteriorates over time because of the amplification of tiny initial differences that you can't ever totally eliminate. So, you know, uh, you, you make a tiny, tiny, you know, many, many decimal places behind the zero change to some initial input in a weather prediction model. And then you run that, uh, run that alongside something with the original input. And one day into the future, they'll be pretty similar. But five days into the future, they will be dramatically different. So whatever you've got slightly wrong today, however tiny that error is, will mean you just can't predict the future in a month. And to illustrate this concept, uh, Lorenz used the image of a bird, I think a seagull, or a butterfly flapping its wings, leading to changes in the weather that would create a tornado that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Now, one thing I also want to make clear is that this is talking about the predicted movements of like specific weather patterns and events, right? When they're trying to say where rain will be at a certain time and how the the front, the, you know, the, the air fronts will move and everything. We can, on the other hand, make some solid predictions about weather just based on climate and statistics. For example, you can predict it is much more likely to be raining in Seattle tomorrow than it is to be raining in Death Valley tomorrow. Right. And you you are likely to be correct based on those predictions made on, on the basis of knowledge about climate and statistics. But still, if you're trying to predict far in the future with specific movements of weather patterns, you're, you're going to have a really hard time doing it. Another misconception about the butterfly effect. I think a lot of times people interpret it exactly the wrong way. It's like the opposite of what it means. They think that it means you can identify small changes that lead to big effects in oh, complex okay. systems. And this is the opposite of the point about the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is specifically about the lack of deterministic predictability in complex systems with sensitivity to initial conditions. And the, the technical term for this would be deterministic nonlinear systems. Nonlinear systems are systems where the outputs are not directly proportional to the inputs. You know, you can slightly vary an input and get big changes in the difference of the output. So the point is not that you can see a tornado and actually trace it back to a butterfly flapping its wings. Rather, the point is that weather systems emerge from complex interactions over time with extreme sensitivity to initial conditions, meaning that if you move far enough back in time, you could not have predicted that a tornado would emerge. It's not about predicting the future of a complex system based on tiny initial changes. It's about how complex systems are more and more unpredictable the farther into the future you try to predict. This, of course, is one of the fundamental concepts of chaos theory. Mm -hmm. And maybe maybe we should come back and devote a full episode to this one day with special guest Ian Malcolm. Yes. I've never really thought to look critically at whether the way Ian Malcolm tries to apply chaos theory in Jurassic Park is a legitimate application of that theory. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe it is. I don't know. That would, it would actually be fun just to do a breakdown of the original Jurassic Park film. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would give us more opportunity to rail against uh, what uh, Jurassic Park, especially the recent films, are doing to <laughs> the understanding of dinosaurs. I'm running uh -huh. into kids now whose favorite dinosaurs are fictional dinosaurs no. from this most recent movie. And I feel like that's a shame. Real dinosaurs are good enough. Come on. Yeah, it's like everybody, they're like, oh, it's this blue velociraptor or something. I don't know. Mm. I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it's wonderful. I suppose I should just be pleased that they're interested in dinosaurs at all. But 
there are just so many wonderful actual species and our our current scientific understanding of them, I feel like, should be reflected to some extent in our fiction. Totally. Uh, so it's pretty widely accepted that something like the butterfly effect applies to weather. I think there are actually are some who dissent and say, no, it's just you know problems with our models or something. Uh, but the question is, would it apply to the biological history of Earth? Would stepping on a fish 70 million years ago change the present substantially and how would it change the present? Uh, unfortunately, this is not a question that I think has a firm scientific answer. I think this is just something we, we don't know what the answer to this question is. Uh, one thing I think, though I could be wrong, is that I think stories like this often get the scale of the changes wrong. Like the, it's interesting that these stories tend to assume kind of nonsensical aesthetic changes around the margins of reality, mm -hmm. but where the broad strokes are the same. Uh, you know, example would be Ned Flanders still exists. The, Simps the Simpsons still exist. They're apparently the same people. Uh, Ned Flanders is still the Simps Simpsons next door neighbor, but is also the dictator of Earth, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> uh, and I know that's a parody. I'm not trying to like rag on the Simpsons for that. But it's a it's a good parody because it highlights the kind of absurdity that you see in stories like this, like in A Sound of Thunder, the idea that you'd still basically have the same uh, people existing and the same like candidates running for office, but a different one of the candidates won. Yeah. And the back to The Simpsons, like why would everything be the same except for the tongue, right? Right. So I, you know, I could be wrong, but I would tend to say just intuitively and based on, you know, using the weather analogy that butterfly effect type changes from deep into the past would result in, let's say, larger amplitude changes tens of millions of years down the road. Uh, bigger, bigger amplitude changes than which candidate wins an election. Would people even exist? If they did, would the same individual people even exist? Uh, I don't know. It seems kind of doubtful. There's that great scene in that episode where Homer uh, sits on a, a creature emerging from the water. Yes. Um, which I love that because I feel like it, it kind of calls back to um, paleo art in our science textbooks mm -hmm. where you're told about uh, the evolution of life and you see this picture of some sort of creature waddling out of the water uh -huh. and talking about like a life coming from the sea and then becoming terrestrial. But it, it can kind of accidentally put this idea in your mind that there was one fish Right. There's yes. one creature, uh -huh. and like that, just like this is the one. And if you sat on it, it would change everything. Yeah, that that kind of misconception. Like one fish got brave, yes, and it climbed out of the water. And if it hadn't done that, there never would have been uh, any kind of like water to land dwelling vertebrate transition. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's part of like an American exceptionalism, right? <laughs> kind of. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, accidentally drained into our science. Like, uh -huh. oh, that fish really that was a free thinker. It really changed everything. <laughs> it's, it's the great man theory of history. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, we got no time for that. Uh, but, hey, this story also deals with the practical effects of time travel, something that Unfortunately, again, is in in the speculative realm, but at least we can offer some informed criticism, even if we can't have a like you know a a proven scientific theory about time travel. So one of the things we often point out on the show is that, of course, time travel into the future is easy. In fact, you're doing it right now right. in more ways than uh, in more than one more than one way more way than one more ways than one. Anyway, you are traveling into the future, of course, at a rate of one second per second. But beyond that. 
you are in fact time traveling into the future in the way that many stories imagine, meaning you're going into the future faster than other things are because of time dilation effects. Mm. You're closer to the center of gravity of Earth. So you are actually going into the future faster than objects farther away from the center of gravity of Earth that are moving at the same velocity as you. Also because you're moving faster, that's dilating time in a way, speeding up your travel into the future. If you get in a spaceship and travel even even faster, then you will even more greatly speed up your relative travel into the future. Uh, you will get old slower than things that are not traveling with you in that fast-moving spaceship. So yeah, tra- time travel into the future is totally real, proven feature of relativity and is just uh, – it, it's actually almost kind of easy. Um, on the other hand, we often talk about how time travel into the past is perhaps impossible and if not impossible, at least very, very hard. Hard. Uh, the ways in which it is done I, – I was, I was reading a post about this uh, on uh, Sean Carroll's blog, the physicist Sean Carroll, uh, he, he's a Caltech physicist. He writes a lot of great you know, popular science writing these days and he's got a great blog. Uh, one of his posts from 2009 is called Rules for Time Travelers where he just says, OK, if we were to try to make scientifically <laughs> accurate time travel movies, what would happen in them? He argues that Traveling into the past is difficult. It might not be impossible. If you can do it, it would be based on what's, you know, basically like bridges through space-time known as closed time-like curves. And if it is possible to travel into the past, one of the things about this is that it is not possible to change the past. So you might be able to travel back in time, but you couldn't create a paradox by, say, going back and killing your grandfather or whatever so that you never existed. In fact, anything you went back into the past and did, you would find was in fact already part of the past in the future that you came from. That's the paradox of the whole situation. Right. I mean, and that, yeah, that makes it kind of weird because uh, that seems to sort of create a, a paradox as well. Like, it's the the closed time loop like you see in the original Terminator movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a boy who exists, or a person who exists only because somebody from the future was sent back in time by him to become his father. So, like, how, how did that closed loop get initiated? So anyway, backward time travel still generally smells rotten to me. But but Carol's saying if it's possible, if it's possible at all, you can't change the past. You you know, whatever's done is done. That just is the past even if you can go back. Also, another point he makes is that you can't travel back in time to before the time machine was invented. (laughs) Mm. He says, you know, maybe you can travel back to a point, you know, you've got a time machine later and you can travel back to when the time machine was made. But you can't travel back to the Middle Ages or something like that because you get paradoxes again. Which takes some of the fun out of uh, our time travel fiction, but – it also would explain why we haven't been visited by time travelers. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's always a great question. Mm-hmm. Now, you might be thinking, okay, but wait about, wait a minute. What about like uh, forking branches of time? You know, can't you like fork off into different branches of time? You know, even Sean Carroll, he, he uh, adheres to the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics, right? So he thinks that the universe is constantly branching off into different realities based on the, the, the wave function of quantum mechanical objects and events. Um, but but even if you accept that, there's no reason to think that traveling back into time would somehow give you access to different quantum realities. It just seems like, you know, you're here, you're here. This is the one you have access to. You yeah. can't interact with other quantum realities. By definition, you can't interact with them. That's what makes them different realities. 
So unfortunately, I don't think you, you know, if you don't like the your lot in life today and you want to change things, I don't think you can do it by going back and stomping on a fish uh, or even a butterfly. <laughs> still, great episode of Treehouse of Horror. Oh, so good. And and I do recommend that Ray Bradbury uh, theater episode as well. I believe you can find the full thing on uh, – uh, one of the video streaming sites. If you love bad movies, I also recommend the 2005 <laughs> movie. It's it's one for the CG ages. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to another one, shall we? All right. So, Joe, you've flown with me before. Yes. <laughs> so you, you you probably have observed that, that I'm kind of a, a slightly nervous flyer. I, I like to try to be a calm, reassuring presence. Yeah. Uh, I try not to raise my voice around you when we're getting <laughs> onto an airplane. Yeah, and and I I have to say I you know I don't have anywhere near the difficulty that I know some people struggle with when it comes to flying, but yeah, I've I've found myself grow more anxious when it comes to flights in recent years, and I've I've been able to successfully uh, uh, manage this to to a certain degree uh, with a little uh, uh, Xanax, a little uh, Steve Roach ambient electronic music, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little Biosphere. Uh, and, and that seems to do the do the the job. It makes me a more pleasant flyer. It makes me more pleasant to be around when I'm flying. Uh, but so, given this reality, I couldn't help but uh, discuss the classic Twilight Zone episode from October of 1963, uh, "Nightmare at 20,000 Feet," <laughs> based, I should point out, on the Richard Matheson short story "Alone by Night." Isn't it great how many of these shorts come from? Great short stories by sci-fi writers. Yeah. I mean, we're going to get to some that are based on on terrible stories. That's true. But uh, but yeah, so far we've been talking about some big names here. Uh, Yeah, Richard Matheson, uh, what is, was a legend. Um, This uh, episode, of course, is famous because it it also starred William Shatner. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just a a quick – Acting. Oh, yeah. He's he's pretty good in this. Yeah. Uh, and he was in a, a, at least a couple of Twilight Zones, maybe more. I remember there there being at least another one he was in. Yeah, what was he? He was in one that had like a what was it a jukebox or yeah, like something? a haunted napkin uh, dispenser. napkin dispenser. Yeah. yeah, why why did I think jukebox? It like did it spit out fortunes or something? Something to that effect. Yeah, it's like a fortune cookie napkin dispenser. Yeah. I'm I'm blanking on the details. It's not nearly as famous as this episode. Uh, so in this one, William Shatner plays a nervous flyer who witnesses a creature on the wing of the plane during flight. Um, and he has a in, – in, in the episode, he has – he's just bouncing back from a nervous breakdown aboard a flight. So everyone's doubting him when he starts reporting seeing a creature on the wing of the plane, uh, this uh, – what, what is essentially a gremlin. Though it's um, kind of a Yeti suit. It's like a combination of a Yeti suit and it also kind of looks like that dog down the hall in the scene in The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> It's not a great monster suit, but the episode is so solid. Yeah. It, it somehow works. And I guess it makes sense that it would be furry if it's at such a, a height. You know, it's cold up there. Mm-hmm. Um, I should point out, I said it, it's a gremlin. Well, it's a, a pre-Mogwai gremlin, a, a pre-Gremlins and Gremlins 2 gremlin. Not the Joe Dante kind. Right, yeah. Uh, this is, you know, essentially the folkloric creature that messes with technology, an idea that spread especially during World War II. So if something went wrong with your airplane engine, you'd say there are gremlins in there. Right. So in this episode, the crew attempts to sedate him. I think they even give him a pill. You mean uh, Shatner, not the gremlin. Right, right. They Shatner. Don't Nobody see the sees the gremlin. They're just like, here, t- take this pill, crazy person. Uh-huh. Um, 
By the way, good luck uh, trying to get uh, uh, any kind of sedatives out of uh, <laughs> uh, um, out of the the crew of your flight. Uh, well, that's, next time you fly. That's the policy. You can't ask for them. You have to say you see monsters, and then you'll get them. <laughs> yeah. So he's raving about the creature, and finally, like the plane lands, he's rolled away in a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. But as he's rolled away, he sees the claw marks on the outside of the plane, the proof on the engine that the monster uh, was tearing apart the plane. He was right all along. He's not the insane person. In fact, he is the only sane person. Of course, this uh, this this episode was also recreated in the 1983 film Twilight Zone, the movie, mm-hmm. in which John Lithgow played uh, the lead, played the nervous uh, flyer, uh, and he's absolutely wonderful in that. Uh, and oh, and by the way, Ger- George Miller of Mad Max fame oh, directed yeah. that uh, that segment in the film. Uh, I like the Gremlin in the in the movie version. Yeah, there's a yeah the movie version Gremlin is a lot more frightening. And then also there was a Treehouse of Horror that oh, did this as well. Well, they do it with the school bus. Right, tear at five and a half feet. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's pretty wonderful as well. And it does a great job of delivering exactly the same story, essentially, except with a, it's on the outside of the school bus, right? Uh-huh, yeah. And then when they put Bart in the ambulance at the end, uh, it follows him under the ambulance. Yes, yes. That, that's a nice twist. Like they added – sometimes the Treehouse of Horrors, like they add a little extra element to the existing story and it it really works. So the science of this, well, uh, you know, we could probably have a really rich discussion about flying anxieties in general. Uh, We've touched on it before in our uh, escape pod episode. You know, we we, we trust ourselves over to the machine and the people, companies, and regulations that ensure everything is working. There's a loss of agency in flying, and I feel like you're just – or you're constantly reminded or are reminding yourself – about the the potential undesirable possibilities. Uh, I mean, it's it's like standing atop a mountain mm-hmm. when you look out and you see the height that you have achieved, not through any skill of your own, but just through the the technology and people surrounding you. It's like being deposited on the top of a mountain. Yes, it's a little bit less empowering. Yeah, airplanes are are uh, sort of great to look at as when you're thinking about fear because they combine so many different kinds of phobia triggers for people. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's just fear of like heights and stuff. You know, looking out the window and looking down that that can upset people. There is fear of an accident of the plane crashing, but there's also just a fear that has always been more salient for me. Whenever I've had airplane fears, mainly what it is is. Um, and what do you call that fear? It's a, sort of a type of a variety of claustrophobia, I guess, where um, not being able to leave a place when you want to. Oh, yeah. You know, the idea that like, okay, for so many hours I'm stuck here and I could not get off if I wanted to. Yeah, the most I can do is go through a lot of rigmarole to walk down the hallway and, and use a very difficult bathroom mm-hmm. uh, and potentially have to wait in line. Yeah, I guess that's a type of fear. There's also just like uh, I know airplanes are, are a particular type of agoraphobia trigger for some people where, you know, like the fear of losing control or having a panic attack or something like that in a public place and that itself can trigger anxieties. Yeah. And then on top of that, you got the travel anxieties leading into it. Right. You know, because inevitably you had to get to that airport. Yeah. You had to get through uh, security. security and, you know, maybe customs if you're on the other line. Like there, there are all these other stresses added on top of it. It makes for, you know, a a very stressful day of travel, really, in my experience. There would be a lot of problems solved if airports would actually just play Eno's music for airports. Yeah, instead of CNN. Yeah. uh, Why? Why do they have the news on the TV instead of of Eno? I don't get it. Yeah, play me something calming. Just like Eno's music 
and just scenes, the scenes from Legend of uh, Unicorns Drinking Water. That's all I need. <laughs> no goblins. So I guess the thing we should talk about is, is the idea that this is a nightmare at 20,000 feet. What, what is the 20,000 feet about, right? Uh, to put this in perspective, uh, the top of Mount Everest is 29,028 feet above sea level. Uh, but that's also quite a bit below uh, the Carmen line at 330,000 feet, which is generally considered the the rough boundary between the atmosphere and space. And I say rough because it's not like the atmosphere just stops. There's more of a tapering off. Mm-hmm. Now, for modern flyers uh, such as ourselves, we're generally working with a cruising altitude. And cruising altitude, you know, that's that's when you've achieved uh, you know, the altitude that you're going to have for the main uh, portion of your flight. You're not ascending or descending. You're just uh, achieving an optimal altitude, optimal speed, uh, et cetera. Uh, but it's generally going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 33,000 feet to 42,000 feet. Though according to the USA Today article, uh, what is the altitude of a plane in flight? The upper limit is generally the domain of private jets. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because that's going to be more about, yeah, we want to get where we're going. Uh, you know, price isn't much of an option, but with commercial flights – Everything is kind of a careful algorithm. Mm-hmm. Like how can we do this in the most cost-effective way possible uh, and the safest way possible? But for the rest of us, yeah, we're going to be you know, somewhere closer to that 33,000-foot uh, uh, altitude. It's going to be this sweet spot where the air is thin enough to reduce drag, but there's still enough oxygen for the engines. Plus, it allows them to fly over most weather, which is located further down in the troposphere. Uh, so we're talking about minimal turbulence, which is exactly how I like to consume the word turbulence. <laughs> now, I would guess at uh, normal cruising altitude because cabins have to be pressurized. Like you couldn't just like breathe the air at that height. Right. Yeah. If, since we're flying above 10,000 feet, airliners are, are pressurized. Hence those little drop down masks for oxygen in the event of cabin depressurization. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Twilight Zone episode, the original one, takes place in the early 1960s. So uh, it made me think, what sort of altitudes were we talking about here? Well, I was uh, reading Longing for the Golden Age of Air Travel, Be Careful What You Wish For, by history (laughs) professor uh, Janet uh, Bednarnik on The Conversation. And she points out some key factors in flying during this time period and, as the title implies, why you'd be far better off flying now as opposed to that golden age, no matter how cool it looks on, uh, you know, stuff like Mad Men. Yeah, but can you smoke a pipe on a plane today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, these are the things people get nostalgic about, I guess, if they're smokers. So she points out that prior to the introduction of jets in 1958, uh, a transatlantic commercial flight might last something like 15 hours. And they had a a maximum cruising altitude altitude of 10 to 12,000 feet, meaning that they couldn't fly over bad weather. So you thought modern delays were bad? No way. Like, <laughs> basically, like if the weather was bad, you just you, you too bad to fly through it, and then it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. The uh, then uh, you had the the propeller driven Boeing Stratocruiser uh, come along, for example, that could uh, seat fifty first class passengers or eighty one coach passengers, and it could cruise at thirty two thousand feet above most of the weather. But uh, during its heyday, only fifty six were active in the entire world. So that's the other thing we have to realize now. It's like the the commercial flight world is just so much vaster than it was mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in in previous times. 
Uh, later, we got the DC-6 and the DC-7, both pressurized planes, but they had to fly at lower altitudes. Uh, guess what? We're talking 20,000 feet. Ah, so. so that's where we, I think, come back around to, uh, to, the, uh, to the Twilight Zone episode. Uh, here, for, the, for these flights, turbulence was common. The engines were difficult to maintain, and this resulted in frequent delays. Uh, so this just matches up perfectly with this original idea of the, the Twilight Zone. Concern about the, you know, what the engines are doing, engine malfunctions, turbulence, uh, all happening at around 20,000 feet. Now, I must notice in, in Nightmare at 20,000 feet that the windows on the airplane look very large compared to the windows on a plane today. You know, I didn't I didn't look into this as much. I wonder if that's just so you can see the monster through it or if they used a, <laughs> uh, an actual uh, fuselage. Uh, yeah, I didn't research that particular aspect of it. Huh. So Bednarik uh, also makes some other important notes about uh, safety at the time because ultimately this is a film about airline safety uh-huh. and fear of, uh, of, uh, of bad things happening during a flight. Uh, She points out that in the 1950s and the 1960s, U.S. airlines experienced at least a half dozen crashes per year, most leading to to the fatalities of everyone on board. Compare that to 2017, the safest year on record in commercial air history. Zero accidental deaths in commercial passenger jets. And that's with many more flights. Oh, yeah, tremendously more flights. Uh, Dutch aviation consulting firm uh, 270 estimated that the fatal accident rate for large commercial passenger uh, flights is 0.06 per million flights or one fatal accident for every 16 million flights. I would suggest by that calculation that it appears gremlins are either extinct or endangered. Yeah, that would seem to be the case. Like this is ultimately a story that speaks more to an earlier age of – of commercial air travel, mm-hmm. despite the fact that every time I fly, legitimately, every time I fly, if I look out the window and I see the wing, I think of this Twilight Zone episode. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, not that I, like, freak out about the possibility of an actual gremlin, but I still, I can't help but think it, think about it. It's just always been there. But I'd like to turn to the, the biological element of Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Okay. What sort of organism can actually become a factor at that altitude? Well, hmm, I mean, I know there there are bacteria that live in clouds, yeah. but uh, are there are there large animals that fly up that high? That's a great question because we're talking about some extreme heights here, right? Um, and again, we, you know, we require pressurized cabins uh, and or masks to to survive up there. Uh, everything has to be, uh, uh, you know, temperature the temperature has to be carefully maintained. Uh, but evolution delivers certain bird species to these lofty heights as well. And yes, some of them can pose grave danger to flights. Uh, these are, of course, referred to as bird strikes, mm-hmm. um, which which are when they occur, uh, can, can be pretty pretty terrible. I've read that most bird strikes um, are encountered at below 10,000 feet. I've also read that most are actually occurring below 3,000 feet. Okay. So I, mean, I think that should give you an idea. Like most of the birds are, are, are operating uh, at, at, at lower altitudes. Mm-hmm. When you fly above the weather, you're probably flying above the birds. So as with most things in air travel, the, the majority of the dangers are going to be closer to takeoff and landing, not at cruising altitude. Right. And and again, they can be pretty dangerous, especially in the event of a dur- double bird strike where mm-hmm. like both engines are hit yeah. uh, by the birds. Still, major accidents are few. 
But we have to consider some of the birds that do get up to some crazy uh, heights. So I just want to run through a few of them here before we get to the like the king of uh, altitude. Uh, there are migrating white storks, which can reach uh, 16,000 feet or 4,800 meters. There are migrating bar-tailed godwits that can, that can actually reach 20,000 feet uh, or 6,000 meters. Wow. There's the bar-headed goose, which can get up to 29,000 feet or uh, uh, 8,800 meters. And these guys fly over the tallest mountain ranges on Earth. Why do they go up so high, do you know? Well, uh, with the the earlier species we were talking about, like this ends up uh, being a part of their migration. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the king of all this, the, the king of altitude is definitely Rupel's vulture, also known as Rupel's griffin. Whoa. We're talking a maximum altitude of 11,300 meters or 37,100 feet. So these are, these are vultures. They're extremely keen of eye. You know, they're, they have evolved to fly above it all and, uh, and take in everything beneath. But they can get up to just crazy altitudes. Uh, you know, they're just unchallenged in their ability to do so. Now, fortunately, they're found only in the Sahel region of Central Africa. This is a belt stretching across the continent just below the Sahara. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, indeed, a bird strike entailing Rupel's vulture actually occurred over the Ivory Coast at an altitude of uh, 37,100 feet or 11,300 meters on November 29, 1973. According to Serious Vulture Hits to Aircraft Over the World, a 2000 report by the International Bird Strike Committee, <laughs> outside temperatures were frigid, there was almost no oxygen, and yet here comes this, uh, this vulture and uh, it hits the plane. So that, I think, is one of the, you know, these are some of the few examples of organisms that are actually going to be going about their normal business, like large organisms, organisms large enough to pose a potential and slim, uh, you know, threat to commercial flights. By the way, I also ran across a, a story from uh, 2010 in which a Rupel's vulture escaped from a bird show in North uh, Lancashire, Scotland, uh, and her name was Gandalf. Uh, and uh, and after she escaped, airports in the area were put on notice, and there was no evidence that she was uh, you know ever recovered or anything. Fly, you fools! Yeah, <laughs> but but it's it was like it's kind of an alarming story because it's like oh this bird has escaped, and it could there's a very slim chance it could pose a danger to commercial flights in the area. But we should remind you that even with the Rupel's vulture flying around somewhere out there, flying is generally pretty safe these days. Yeah, it's far safer than driving when you break down the statistics. Uh, again, C- commercial flying, yes, not, commercial flying. not necessarily getting in the uh, the airplane that your dentist buddy owns. Right. We're talking about commercial flights. Uh, again, 2017, safest uh, year on record. Mm-hmm. Um, you really don't have to worry about gremlins on the wing of the plane. Only about the Langoliers when you <laughs> land the plane. Speaking of uh, late 90s uh, CGI, right? Yes, for real. Man, that's a good one. I love that short story, though. That was, a, that was definitely a Stephen King, uh, well, maybe it was more of a novella, but it, uh, it definitely harkened back to some of those Twilight Zone-type uh, scenarios. Uh, I've never read the story, but I remember seeing that on TV sometime around back when it came out. And, oh, man, that, yeah. that was one where maybe even, maybe even the critics of the time were not wowed by the CGI. yeah. They, they were essentially like the critters, the Krites from the Critters movies. They were just these big CGI mouths like eating the sky. Uh, it's a shame because the original story is a lot of fun. I, I do recommend it. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't read it on a plane for God's sake, but, <laughs> um, you know, do read it when you're on the ground. 
Okay, we need to take a quick break, but we will be right back with more horror anthology science. All right, we're back. So what do you have for us, Joe? Well, you just did a Twilight Zone episode. I feel like I got to do a Twilight Zone episode. They had There are so many thoughtful episodes of the Twilight Zone, and perhaps because you know, it wasn't just pure horror. It also had a lot of science fiction in it and just mm-hmm. sort of weird fiction in general. So here is a sci-fi horror episode of the Twilight Zone. This is one of the classics. You probably – I bet the majority of you out there listening already know the story here. But for those of you who don't, I've got to tell it. It is To Serve Man. Ah. Uh, this is one that was written by Rod Serling based on a story by a writer named Damon Knight. It was originally uh, aired on March 2nd, 1962, and it's just got a twist to put M. Night Shyamalan to shame. (laughs) It is the best. So here's Rod Serling's teaser for the episode. Respectfully submitted for your perusal. A canimate. Height, a little over nine feet. Weight, in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin, unknown. Motives. Therein hangs the tale, for in just a moment we're going to ask you to shake hands, figuratively, with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is The Twilight Zone. Ooh, well, that's already a terrifying uh, possibility here. So it's got a guy named Lloyd uh, Bachner in it as – he was a Canadian actor – as this government cryptographer who uh, who is tasked with decoding an alien book. So actually I should say first, aliens show up. Yes. Uh, they're called the Canimates. They're played by Richard Kiel who ended up playing – Kyle or Kiel? Do you know how you pronounce it? I always heard Kiel, but it could be – Drastically wrong on that. He's the guy who played Jaws in the James Bond movies. Yeah, Uh, he was Ega as well. He was Ega, yeah. yeah. Uh, And so he plays all of these aliens. They all look the same. Uh, And uh, Richard Kiel in in like some weird head makeup shows up on Earth and he speaks to the United Nations telepathically and he's like, hey, we're here to help you. We're going to solve world hunger. We're going to make – we're going to make war disappear. We're going to solve all your problems and make life on Earth great. Don't you want that? Don't you want this free uh, new energy source that you can, you know, power a whole country for a few dollars a day? Don't you want all this great stuff? And people are – they're hesitant at first but they're like, well, okay. And so uh, Jaws brings a book with him. (laughs) <laughs> that it has like a title in these alien glyphs on the cover. He's like reading things from this book as he's uh, promising stuff to humanity. And they get a copy. The humans grab a copy of the book and they bring it to this government cryptographer. And they're like, can you decode this? Tell us what it means. And so he he works on it. He's got a colleague named Patty who works on it. Uh, it, it proves too difficult to decode except that Patty decodes the title and figures out that the title is To Serve Man. Well, that sounds noble and wonderful and, and really works out well for us. Exactly. So uh, they can't decode the rest of the book but To Serve Man and th- that sort of puts people at ease. They're like, OK, well, the book there is about how to serve humankind. That, that sounds like a good thing. So uh, people start getting on spaceships to go with Jaws to his home planet uh, where they will be given uh, – I think they at one point they're talking about how they've even got baseball on the Canimates planet <laughs> uh, to go to the – basically it's like a, a forever vacation where everything's just going to be awesome. So the people are getting on the spaceships to go there. And then the big twist that comes at the end is uh, right as the main guy is about to get on the spaceship to go to the Canimates planet and uh, and and live out his days at the the baseball resort or whatever – Patty comes yelling at him, don't get on the ship. It's a cookbook. (laughs) It's so good. Oh, 
to serve man yeah. for dinner. I believe The Simpsons uh, uh, parodied this as well to a limited extent, right? How to serve Millhouse for dinner. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I vaguely I don't remember when that which when I don't I can't remember which episode it was. Uh, okay, but they definitely uh, touched on it at one point. Now. I don't want to be too literal about interpreting the science of the story because if you really wanted to be nitpicky, you could point out a million really funny details in it. Mm-hmm. Like there's one point where to try to make sure that the aliens' intentions are actually good, they hook Jaws up to a uh, to a polygraph test. <laughs> it's just like they give him a human polygraph to, to, to see if he's lying about wanting to help them. Uh, and another thing that's funny is they bring in this cryptographer to decode this alien book But to decode it to what? Like cryptography usually consists of trying to decode encoded messages to a known language where you're like, you know, where it will code out to some kind of script that you already understand. How would you decode an alien language when you have nothing to start with? Yeah, and I like the idea that they could could figure out nothing from the inside, like no content, but just the title. Yeah, the, it's great. But anyway, okay, the main thing I wanted to talk about, ignoring all that other stuff, is the idea of aliens invading in order to eat us. <laughs> or perhaps more realistically, another option, just to eat Earth life in general. Maybe not focused on us, but just here to eat things. Okay, so not just to, say, harvest the resources of our planet mm-hmm. or to do something to our star, which we've discussed in the right. past. But you're talking about, like, just – just just tear into the biomass of Earth. It's a very common theme in sci-fi horror, and at a glance, it sort of makes sense because you think about like, okay, so what do human invaders do when they invade a country? Well, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll just like raid your village and take all your food. You know, right. They want food. They need all your – they'll t- steal all your grain and stuff and then they'll move on. Or they'll land on an island and if there's a particular uh, flightless bird or – or some sort of a uh, you know turtle or tortoise that is uh, not, you know notoriously unable to defend itself and mm-hmm. and perhaps even uh, trusting to a fault of humans, they might just eat them all, or just every time they come back, uh, harvest as many as they can and eat them on the ship, or just kill them and not eat them. Right, humans did that. Uh, did that too. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that's a little. Maybe we don't want to think about that comparison. Uh, <laughs> but okay, so would they want to eat us or eat our food? Uh, I came across an interesting opinion about this. This was in a chapter from a book called Aliens: The World's Leading Scientists on the Search for Extraterrestrial Life, uh, published in 2017 by Picador. And this book was edited by the Iraqi-British physicist Jim Al-Khalili. And there's a chapter in this book uh, that was written by the British astrobiologist Lewis Dartnell, where he's talking about what would aliens actually want with Earth? Why would they be interested in coming here? And he's making the case that a lot of the stuff that people usually imagine aliens would want to come here for doesn't make any sense, that they want water or they want raw minerals or something like that. He, he or just, our women. You, you, oh, that's one too. <laughs> With all those things, he points out how, you know, that's either – that's not actually a concern for anything they would want or they could get this more abundantly elsewhere. And so here's Dartnell's case about uh, whether aliens would want to eat us. 
So the cells in our bodies are made of large collections of specific organic molecules. You've got proteins, which are chains of amino acids. You've got the nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, which are chains of bases and sugars. And then, of course, you've got the best part, the membranes and the phospholipids. Uh, and so in order to keep our bodies alive and working properly, we need to have steady incoming streams of those molecular building blocks. So we eat other life forms like plants and animals in order to get them. You can't survive obviously just by like eating sand or tree bark or salt and ammonia. You need to get specific organic molecules like sugars, amino acids and fatty acids in order to survive. It's also true that your digestive system is specifically evolved to break down certain kinds of stuff like earth plant matter and earth animal flesh. And it is it has specially tailored enzymes for breaking down those molecules likely to be found in the stuff your ancestors were eating. Yeah, it's also worth reminding, you know, we eat a lot of creatures and plant life on this planet. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to forget that there's a whole lot of stuff we cannot eat. There yeah. are a lot, of, uh, a lot of species that are just not on the menu for us. Most of the mass of planet Earth you can't eat. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, the, there's a lot of stuff you just can't get nutrition from. Even if it contains raw atoms that you might want, you know, that would be useful, your body doesn't have a way to break them down properly. It doesn't have the right chemical enzymes and stuff to separate out the parts that you would need or put together the parts that you would need. Your digestive system is shaped by what was available to the creatures that you evolved from. Now, fortunately, most other life forms on Earth have these useful molecules in some nutritionally available way. Other animals on Earth are nourishing to us because we came from a common ancestor and we share common biochemistry. So in order to get nutrition from eating us, an alien would need to share our biochemistry. And in order to do that, we would either need to share a common ancestor, and unless they're coming from somewhere else within our solar system, which seems unlikely at this point, it's not likely we would share a common ancestor – or we need to have the same biochemistry by coincidence. So what are the odds of sharing biochemistry by coincidence? Uh, Dartnell writes, well, that's certainly possible. For all we know, perhaps our DNA-based life is the only way you can make self-reproducing life forms out of the chemistry available in the universe. Uh, Dartnell points out that, quote, a whole variety of amino acids, sugars, and fatty molecules are actually found in certain meteorites, having been produced by astrochemistry in outer space. And so maybe extraterrestrial life would be based on the same basic building blocks as us. So the point there is that we haven't found life beyond Earth, but we found a lot of the chemical building blocks of life beyond Earth. Uh, and maybe our way is a common way or even the only way for the universe to put evolution in motion and create the possibility of intelligent life. But then Dartnell points out a big complication. Quote, Simple organic molecules like amino acids and sugars can exist in two different forms, mirror images of each other, in the same way your two hands are similar shapes but can't be placed exactly on top of the other. These two versions are known as enantiomers, and it turns out that all life on Earth uses only left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars, whereas non-living chemistry produces even mixtures of both kinds. Uh, so yeah, picture that what he's saying about holding your hands on top of each other. They're, they're the same shape, 
but you can't put one on top of the other one. You have to invert one of them in order for them to match up. And with three-dimensional things, that means that they're not chemically the same, actually. You can't use one for the other. And in science, this, this handedness of sugars and amino acids is known as chirality. Uh, the fact that all life on Earth uses only left-handed amino acids and right-handed sugars, uh, that's known as homochirality. And it's a fascinating mystery to people who study the chemistry of life. Why? Why not the other way around or why not both? Uh, both chiralities are and presumably always have been available out there in the universe. So why did life on Earth end up using only these kinds? Why only left-handed amino acids and only right-handed sugars? And in fact, Dartnell points out that chirality is a good way to know that traces of life we find, say, on Mars are actually authentic. So imagine you've got a rover on Mars and it picks up amino acids somewhere on the surface of Mars and they employ the opposite biochemical orientation. So you've got right-handed amino acids. Then we could know that they were genuinely alien and not simply contamination from Earth life that we took along with us on the rover by accident. And so Dartnell writes, quote, So here's a fascinating thought. Alien invaders could be based on exactly the same organic molecules, amino acids, sugars, etc., but they still wouldn't gain any nutrition from eating us as the origins of life on their own planet settled on the opposite enantiomers. We'd be mirror images of each other on a molecular level. And, of course, if this applied to us, meaning we couldn't be nutritious to them, it would also apply to our food sources. It would apply to all life on Earth. So they'd be like, oh, that Earth food, I can't handle any of it. In fact, it might even be toxic to them. Mm. I was looking at a paper from 2014 in PLOS1 by Zhang and Sun um, about how how bacteria are able to sort of break down uh, – right-handed amino acids. And one of the things that they talk about is how right-handed amino acids are toxic for life on Earth. Mm. And it's actually important that bac bacteria do some breaking down of these right-handed amino acids or else they would accumulate to toxic levels in the environments. Oh, man. I, there has to be some hard sci-fi that explores this possibility. What, that aliens come here to eat us, but then we poison them? <laughs> well, I mean, just the idea that they're reflections on a molecular level and therefore incompatible uh, with us or our food. Yeah, well, I like that idea that, like, they could, they could, in theory, even look exactly like us. They could have bodies that are very – we're just toxic to each other. Yeah. Like contact and sharing organic molecules from each other would be poisonous. Like if it was the movie Alien Nation – in, and you had to have like left-handed food restaurants and right-handed food restaurants. And there was, you know, it was, you know, there's certainly discrimination there, but also the fact that uh, the, each species can only eat a certain type of matter, of mm -hmm. organic matter. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, but the thing there is that if you assume their ecosystem is – their planet is also from a single common ancestor, maybe it would be that all of their planet uses the opposite chirality of us, mm -hmm. meaning that it's not just like we need different food, but every bit of life in their whole world would be toxic to us. Oh, wow. And all yeah. of the life in our world would be toxic to them. So like in order to interact, we'd almost need to like, you know – be, be sort of sealed off in a way. Oh, wow. Well, see, that's a wonderful sci-fi concept there. So anyway, I, I thought that was an interesting possibility. Even if they wanted to serve man, it might, the dinner might not go so well. I like that we were taking some of the, the anxiety out of our Twilight Zone episodes here. Uh -huh. We don't have to be as afraid of uh, 
creatures on the wing of the plane don't have to be as afraid of uh, alien uh, civilizations coming to our planet to cook us and eat us. Well, I mean, the the downside of that, thinking about the incompatibility of different biochemistries, is that uh, you could have aliens that meant well and that didn't want to eat us, but, you know, just wanted to make contact and actually be helpful, wanted to serve man in the original naive sense of the understanding, but just brought with them a bunch of molecules that are deadly to us. Oh, man, which brings us kind of back to the Christopher Columbus idea, doesn't it? Well, I, I wouldn't say that Christopher Columbus meant well. I know that's not what you were saying. No, either, no, no, but, but just uh, the idea that on a, even, a biological level ends up bringing death and also on a cultural uh, level as well. Yes, like that even if Columbus had actually meant well, yeah, uh, he he wouldn't have been able to help bringing death along with him. Yeah. All right. I feel like we're going pretty long here, but I think we have time for just one more story. Okay. And uh, this one comes to us from Tales from the Crypt. It uh, aired in the fifth season, uh, episode five. This was October 1993. I love how most of these episodes actually aired during October at some mm-hmm. point. Uh, and it was titled People Who Live in Brass Hearses. <laughs> All right, so this one, this is a delight because this is one of four episodes directed by Russell McKay, uh, the visionary director who gave us Highlander 1. Highlander 1 and Highlander 2 also? And Highlander 2. Really? Yes, and uh, most of the great music videos of the 1980s. Total Eclipse of the Heart, that was him. Wild Boys, that was him. How do you say his name? Mulcahy? It's, it's, I believe it's Mulcahy. It's M-U-L-C-H-Y. I've never been able to pronounce that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the visionary behind uh, uh, Highlander, various other films, uh, and I do mean that authentically. Like, there is a visual style to his work. There is an intensity that uh, you just – you know it when you see it. A thing that I think I rediscovered this year upon going back to the first Highlander movie, at, mm-hmm. at your insistence, is that actually the first Highlander movie is almost as bad as the second one. It's pretty bonkers. Yeah. yeah. But we'll, we'll save that for, for an upcoming episode. Oh, yeah. We've still got Science of Highlander 2 coming up. Yes. Before the year is up, uh, that episode will finally come to fruition. We're not joking. Yes. It's real. So this episode of Tales from the Crypt, uh, it's like a lot of uh, episodes. It's a wealth of just wonderful acting talent, spectacular gore effects, a notable director, and a script that, well, (laughs) depends on how you look at it, right? (laughs) I mean, it's easy to take these scripts out of context and and dream about what a stronger, uh, you know, rewrite could have done for it. But on the other hand, the material is the material. And the whole premise of the show is that these are retold classic horror comic shorts uh, you know, from the, the the you know the golden age of horror comics, and they you know tend to throw some sort of a heel character through the ringer yeah. with a murderous or supernatural uh, circumstances taking place. Yeah, it's generally uh, there. There's some kind of nasty dude, and he gets his comeuppance through some kind of supernatural karma. Yeah, nasty meets nasty. And then there is a joke about it. There's yeah. not a lot of nuance. It's uh, these were horror stories essentially for for for, for kids and, uh, but with know. completely inappropriate content. Oh yeah, it was. That's the other thing. <laughs> All of these stories are so inappropriate. You go even going back now and watching these uh, these episodes, like some of them are just like so cringeworthy. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's a flaw. It's like it's kind of what you get. It's that's tales from the crypt. It's it's gross. It's inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, and yet there's something wonderful about it. 
So this particular episode definitely brings it with the cast because this one starred Bill Paxton and Brad Dorif. Uh, that's, of course, Bill Paxton from uh, Aliens, The Terminator. Right. Um, and, uh, and Brad Dorif uh, played Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings movie. Uh, the voice of Chucky. He's been mm. in so many fabulous uh, films so over the years. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, that was uh, another one of his big uh, accomplishments. He was also uh, in what, Wise Blood, I think? Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, he was in uh, Exorcist 3. Yes. Yeah, he's a fabulous character actor. So already you have some wonderful uh, talent to work with here. Uh, they play brothers Billy and Virgil. Billy is a mean-spirited slime bag fresh out of prison. A, a performance by Paxton that reminds me a lot of his vampire character in uh, Near Dark. Mm-hmm. You know, just just – a bad person. And his brother is essentially Lenny from Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Uh-huh. So they have that kind of relationship. Billy talks Virgil into an ice cream factory heist, which goes all wrong. <laughs> they were going to steal a bunch of ice cream? They were going to steal some money from a safe, but they end up just murdering some people instead. Okay. And as a fallback plan, they go after the ice cream truck driver who originally turned Billy in for stealing from the company, a man by the name of Mr. Bird. And Mr. Bird is played by veteran character actor Michael Lerner. Oh, the uh, producer from Barton Fink. Yeah, he was nominated for uh, an actor for that role. He's tremendous, uh, and he's he's great in this, too. Like, everybody's great in this. But the, here's the twist. Here's the grotesque uh, Tales from the Crypt twist. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bird turns out to be two men, Whoa. conjoined twins. And the episode's grisly payoff is that while the brothers succeed in killing one of the twins, uh, they shoot him. Uh, he's shot in the head with a shotgun when he emerges through a beaded curtain. It turns out that the other one lives, and he gets his vengeance. Uh, the final shot of the episode after he's killed the brothers uh, shows uh, the the surviving uh, Mr. Bird uh, twin sitting in his ice cream truck, making his rounds with his decaying twin hunched over in the back seat. Wow! And this is—I I didn't even touch on some of the just truly bizarre elements of this episode. For instance, Billy, Bill Paxton's character. Uh huh. Totally does not need to have a butter-eating addiction. Butter-eating but, yeah, but he's like eating sticks of butter throughout oh. the whole film for no reason with no payoff. <laughs> like he already had a pretty good, you know, trope character here. Bill, you know, Bill Paxton is playing a slime ball. It's wonderful. He was born for this role and you throw in the butter for some reason. Wow. Uh, there's also a part where um, Virgil is reading a comic book and it is Predator versus Jesse James. <laughs> Uh, which doesn't I have no problem with. I love it, but it's just such a, a random element to throw in. Uh, that's the original Cowboys versus Aliens. It really was, yeah. I, I would love to see it. Uh, give me uh, Jesse James versus Predator. Uh, so the science question here, though, of course, is could this happen? If one conjoined twin were to die, uh, would the other one be able to live on in this grotesque, grotesque manner? Okay. So to begin with, I do have to point out again that Tales from the Crypt is pretty far from any sort of fair or reasonable portrayal of conjoined twins or just humanity in general. Yeah. The show and the comics they're based on, they tended to have a real freak show vibe concerning any sort of uh, deformation, birth defect, mutilation, or even just something as routine as identical twins. You know, Mm -hmm. everything was played for weird. Everything was played for grotesque. And the stereotypes are pretty broad and grotesque too. Right. So you don't go to uh, Tales from the Crypt to think about uh, how to model thinking about uh, medical conditions. No, not not at all. Uh, and yet uh, that's kind of what we're doing in this, this segment. So here we go. So scientifically, uh, conjoined twins are monozygotic twins 
who are joined at some region of their bodies. And the details depend on exactly where the conjunction is situated. So the exact cause of conjoined twins isn't fully understood, but a major theory here is that the fer- a fertilized egg is going to split into a monozygotic uh, set of twins, but it doesn't fully separate, hmm. and they remain connected. So the bird twins here are represented as Terata catadidima conjoined twins. These are lower body conjunctions. And more specifically, they are pygopagus twins, meaning they're back-to-back joined at the rump. So this accounts for roughly 19%. I've also read 17% of conjoined twins. Uh, But don't let that number fool you. That still means that they're extremely rare occurrences. Um, These individuals, they commonly share uh, the uh, gluteal region, terminal spine, and lower gastrointestinal, urological, and reproductive tracts. So surgical separation of conjoined twins in general, it ranges from simple to near impossible, depending on the conjunction. In many cases, it's a highly risky surgery with potentially fatal outcomes for both patients. However, successful separations of pygopagus conjoined twins have occurred and, uh, you know, with various cases presented in medical literature. Uh, And the cases of separation do tend to be presented in medical literature. Like these are, Mm -hmm. these are generally, you know, uh, the more, uh, certainly the more complicated um, separations are exactly the kind of thing you're going to find written up in a journal. Right. But a separation is not what we see in this episode of Tales from the Crypt. One twin is killed via a shotgun blast to the head, and the other continues to live, dragging him around while he kills off the two brothers and then continues his ice cream rounds. <laughs> Could this happen? Uh, well, broadly speaking, no. Yeah. And I don't think that should come to anybody's surprise, uh, given that, again, this is Tales from the Crypt. Dr. Eric Strach, a pediatric surgeon at the University of Maryland Hospital for Children, he actually covered the matter in the Esquire article, How to Separate a Conjoined Twin on His Deathbed. Yeah, he was interviewed uh, or uh, interview segment was used in that article. He did not write it. Uh-huh. Uh, but he pointed out that once uh, one twin's heart stops beating, the blood stops pumping and the vessels dilate. Then the living twin will essentially bleed into the dead twin And this will happen quickly if the uh, physical connection between the two is large enough. But with smaller cases, there will be an infection in a matter of hours. And in these cases, it's technically possible that surgical separation could save the living twin. uh, But he didn't think it had ever been attempted. Again, in many cases, separation might not even be possible under ideal conditions, much less like an emergency uh, uh, intervention scenario. So while we may be able to accept the idea that um, the surviving bird twin murders his brother's killers, the idea that he goes on to drive the ice cream truck around seems a bit of a stretch. Now, Robert, I see you've attached a panel from a comic. So this one was based on, I guess, something that was told in the comics before it was on the show? Yes, this one was definitely based on a comic. Those comics managed to come up with some really gross stuff that, that became only grosser when it was translated to, to HBO. Yeah, the, the comics were big about like the, just the visual, visceral horror, and the show did a great job of, of portraying that. Uh, yeah, this, this panel that I found from it, uh, which, which is easy to find if you do a, just a Google search for, uh, for the title of this episode, which was also the title of the comics, uh, People Who Live in Brass uh, Hearses. Uh, yeah, you just see the, the ice cream truck driver climbing out of the back of the truck, and he just has this, this rotting corpse attached to the back of him with flies buzzing around it. Uh, it's, it's horrifying, grotesque, insensitive, <laughs> uh, everything you would expect from a Tales from the Crypt. 
Now, Robert, uh, in your reading about the actual, uh, like the surgeries involved here and stuff, do you get the sense that um, that medical science is making a lot of progress in in how to help uh, conjoined twins, especially in cases where they do need to be separated? Yeah, I mean that seems to be the case, but uh, at the same time, it's like so many of these cases they are they are different. Each one has its own individual yeah. challenges, and they, it's rare. It's rare, uh, and you know when it when it does pop up, there are also going to be a lot of arguments uh, potentially about is this the thing to do? Is 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 this is this the the morally correct um, medical intervention if there is such a risk to both patients? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are some heartbreaking accounts in the literature where an attempt is made to separate uh, two conjoined twins, and they simply both die. They don't, neither one just, uh, uh, actually survives the surgery. Right. Well, I mean, I guess I was specifically thinking of cases where it is medically necessary mm-hmm. in order to save them or, or uh, create better health outcomes to separate them. I mean, I don't think we should just assume that all conjoined tr- twins naturally want to be separated. Uh, yeah. B- basically, it comes down to just the complexity of the of the um, the connection. Like if if the connection is is smaller and more simple, mm-hmm. and uh, then it can actually be a pretty safe um, procedure, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are just other cases where it is going to be kind of like the the, the Mount Everest of uh, of surgical intervention, mm-hmm. and and yet sometimes depending on the, the the situation, it it may be something that has to be done. This is yet another thing that I think uh, might deserve a deeper look sometime in the future. Oh yeah, absolutely. We've only just <laughs> we've we've only we've barely uh, brushed the surface of uh, of twins and certainly conjoined twins. And uh, the, obviously, there's a lot of a lot of fascinating information out there about you know the lives that led by actual conjoined twins and not the you know the cartoonish examples that uh, we see in like Tales from the Crypt, which yeah. sa- sadly it tends to be. This is the kind of thing that tends to be one's first introduction to conjoined twins. In the same way that unless you have identical twins in your classroom uh, growing up, uh, in, if you're not encountering them in your life, your first example to, to identical twins is likely going to be some sort of weird horror show uh, yeah. uh, example. When you're five and you watch Dead Ringers. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not. But certainly you could watch The Simpsons, right? The Simpsons right. had the Treehouse of Horror where evil twins, Bart's yeah. evil twin was separated from him and is living in the attic. I wonder, I mean, is the belief in evil twins actually a fairly common thing or does everybody understand that's not real? I hope everyone understands that. I mean, I have friends with with twins, and uh-huh. um, and and I I've talked to them a little bit about just you know to the point where they just want to avoid any like creepy twin content, and I don't don't blame them. Um, but uh, I, th- I it basically I think comes down more to the to us untwinned individuals, mm-hmm. where we see this, we see two identical individuals, and we think of just all the potential self-exploration. Like, what if I were two people? What would that mean? Right. What if one represented my best qualities and one my, my, uh, you know, my, 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 my darker qualities? And of course, meanwhile, these twins are, are two separate people who are just trying to live their lives, and we're staring at them trying to gaze down our own navel or write a... a a grotesque horror story. Uh, yeah, the the looker, the the person who looks at another is the real monster, you know, because they always want to make monsters out of people who are just people. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. Uh, Anthology of Horror, Volume 1, because if everyone liked this, maybe we'll do it again next year. Maybe this will be our new uh, Halloween thing. Uh, and if it is, what would you like us to cover? 
guess this means before then I'm gonna have to go back and watch some uh, some horror anthology series. I, I am I am uh, underexposed at this point. <laughs> I had a hard enough time picking just the ones I, t- I did today, though. Uh, I guess I'd never run out of uh, Treehouse of Horror episodes to pick. The tree, yeah, Treehouse tends to be a nice like overview of great anthology works uh, in, in places. Other times, of course, they're parroting uh, feature length films. Mm-hmm. I think Twilight Zone and, and Outer Limits, Black Mirror. These are great places to look to. Tales from the Crypt, a little bit harder. I ran into a lot of dead ends and bad puns before I I decided to to talk about this one. Well, it is a forest of uh, dead ends and bad puns, as I'm to understand. All right. Well, hey, everyone out there, you have a year to catch up on horror anthologies as well and to suggest uh, episodes from those anthologies you'd like us to consider covering in the future. In the meantime, check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is our, our mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. That's where you'll find links out to our social media accounts like Facebook and Twitter, uh, Instagram. Uh, it's also where you'll find our store where you can pick up some cool merchandise uh, that either has our logo or brand on it or it calls back to uh, specific episodes that we've covered on the show. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback about this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, let us know uh, where you listen from, how you found out about the show, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.